In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Ta-da! <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> like Must... I did a magic trick. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of the sound that it used to make when you'd like start windows up back in the 90s. Like, oh, on your gateway uh, PC. Oh my god! <laughs> I was just thinking the other day about like Alta Vista and Netscape Navigator. Oh my gosh! I never used Alta Vista, but I did use Netscape Navigator. I think I don't know Alta Vista and Netscape Navigator. I remember them on like my high school library's yes. computers, yes. but I don't remember. I I didn't have the internet at home. I don't think until like my senior year of high school. We just used AOL. I don't oh. know. And when I thought I was really techie versus like my parents, I'd use Internet Explorer at home. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I have some items to discuss. Mm, okay. Number one, are you current on Real Housewives of Salt Lake City? You better believe I am. I just need to mention that in two separate episodes now, Whitney has done this thing where she's kind of like doing the wobble but she's like i'm cleansing my or no i'm fluffing my aura i'm fluffing my aura she does the thing that i do when i'm trying to cheat at my stand goal on my watch (laughs) with my arms (laughs) i like how the stand goal is only for you but you're like let me cheat this so that the computer rewards me it's like i need to show them that i'm moving it's not really a cheat because listen if it was for exercise it's a cheat if it's trying to say like move if the whole point of getting your stand goal is to be like active enough to be moving around i feel like it's better if i'm sh- like rapidly moving my arms than if i'm just like standing up right uh, it's active it's just a different part of my body <laughs> i don't i don't think the science would agree with you but sure <laughs> i love whitney by the way she's quickly become one of my new favorite housewives on the whole franchise She's very sassy, and I like that. You know what I like about her? She doesn't do the the typical, oh, I'm going to back down from this argument because I got, like, a, a scrap of an apology, or, oh, that's right. good enough. She's like, no, no. <laughs> this is a setup. <laughs> this is fake. <laughs> I'm not doing this. I'm not taking that. That's not a real apology. <laughs> you can't just get away with saying, like, we agree to disagree. She's like, no, you're actually terrible. <laughs> Yeah, I do like that about her. I'm into it. Way more than than last season. Yeah, agreed. There is also a rumor that there is a new Real Housewives city to be announced on Monday. Oh, okay. I'm ready for it. Rumors are either Nashville, Tennessee, which could be fun, Mm -hmm. or Dubai. Oh, Oh, I've heard Dubai was going to be a thing anyway. Oh, really? Okay, so maybe it's something else. I'm excited i also have never seen any international ones so if they announced dubai and it's like new and current i would probably watch it oh me too i would totally give it a shot as long as it's not something i can watch it on then i'm into it oh sure yeah um i was gonna ask are you watching winter house no because i don't care about the southern charm people and i don't want to care about them listen i don't either but all they are there for is to add drama to the win- to the summer house people. So I encourage you to try it because mm. episode two, episode one, it was already wild. And then episode two, Lindsay shows up and things oh. just go absolutely haywire. And it's great. Is the format similar to summer house or is it like? Exactly. Maybe. We'll see. 
I'll definitely watch Summer House when it comes back, but I don't know if I can give Winter House a go. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, my third item, I'll skip over one of them, but my third item is I, Miles and I have been rewatching the Gilmore Girls because he wanted to and mm-hmm. whatever. Um, <laughs> and yes, I know it's terrible. No, I, and... I, I don't care what anybody thinks. I liked Gilmore Girls. I know it's got problematic things about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I have to say, the writing for that time period of that type of show... I have to yeah. imagine. I haven't rewatched it, but I have to yeah. imagine it's it's more progressive than like Friends. Oh, it's way way, you know way I mean? better like, than Friends. Yeah, those kinds of things. And it was yeah. smart writing. I remember. Yes, they were good writers for sure. Um, anyway, we just rewatched the whole thing, and then we saw watched this stupid Netflix four episode things that came out like two years ago or whatever. The one of the scenes in there is they're talking about how Rory had like weird crushes when she was a child. Like they were talking about the weird people she had crushes Mm -hmm. on. And one of them she says was Jerry Orbach from Law and Order. (laughs) So anyway, that was my crossover. (laughs) I don't, I didn't have this on the list, but since we're we're talking about Bravo, I just have to know, are you watching Vanderpump Rules? Listen, I'm, I just saw the episode. Are you? Yes, we're current. Okay. I'm I just saw the episode where James and Raquel got engaged. Mm-hmm. I don't I I don't it's not good. It's I'm, not good. I'm struggling through it because I like Katie and I think that's kind of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> here's my my thoughts. I mean, they're always trash people, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, you you usually have people that you like to see on screen whether you like them or not. Yes. I don't care about James and Raquel and their relationship, and James is clearly on major drugs. Um, <laughs> I don't care about Brock at all because he's trash. No. I kind of care about Sheena this season, believe it or not. <laughs> and wow. uh, Tom Sandoval, he is just the worst. I think when Jax was around, I didn't notice how terrible Tom Sandoval was. Yeah, but now he's now he's the number one guy. Oh my god! And it just feels like they're just so glad that Jax is off the show and that Stassi and Kristen are gone. Then they feel like now it's our show. And guess yeah. what? They're boring as hell, and who cares about any of right. them? Eesh. A, a few. I'll I'll do two of my recommendations because they're sort okay. of <laughs> in the same world. I watched two documentaries recently. One was called Holy Hell, which I just watched. A couple days ago, because I watched an episode, I listened to an episode of Sinisterhood. Shout out to Sinisterhood again. But they did the Buddhafield cult. Oh, I don't think I've, I'm, I'm not current on Sinisterhood. I'm so close to being current. I'm in like May of 2021. I can't believe it. Okay. Um, but yeah, the, it's that is a wild story, let me tell you. I've never heard of it, and I can't believe I hadn't. And there's <laughs> a documentary on Amazon Prime called Holy Hell that's all about it. Woohoo! It is. Wild. It is wild. So highly recommend that if you're looking for something that is out there and bizarre. Like, and I have, I have to tell you, all of the people that they interview uh, that are ex-members of this cult mm-hmm. could absolutely just be in Santa Barbara or Ojai. Like, they are just oh. Ojai Santa Barbara people. So you're going to watch funny. it and be like, do you run <laughs> an organic coffee shop <laughs> around the corner for me? Um, the other one is called Pray Away, which is on, ooh, I think it's, that one's either on HBO or Netflix. Okay. That one is about the Exodus organization and conversion therapy. 
Mm. That is pretty mind-blowing as well. <laughs> I mean, I obviously have heard of conversion therapy, have yeah. had it recommended to me, <laughs> have heard about it in casual conversation even just like a week ago. And it just shows that all of the people who formed the organization that was like pushing it, uh-huh. guess what they're doing now? Being gay? Being gay and fighting back against it and apologizing. Good. Good. So I feel like that's like an important – if you're a queer person out there or if you're a an ally, I feel like that's an important one to watch, to be honest. Yeah. But anyway. So, yeah. Well, that's Matt. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm N. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to Ripped from the Headlines. Welcome. P.S. If you are – if you are enjoying what you're hearing so far, go ahead and rate and review us on whatever you're listening to our podcast on, because that would really help us out. Yeah, and if you'd like to learn more about us and find information about our show, newsletters, merch, we have a merch store, um, our Patreon, which is now available. And if you heard last week's episode, that is the first of many episodes available to you on our Patreon. Um, mm-hmm. Check out our website, rippedheadlinespod.com. Yeah. Super. Super, super duper. <laughs> Well, are you ready for this week's episode? Are you ready for this week's episode? Maybe, maybe not. (laughs) Well, this is season three, episode eight of Law and Order, and the title is Prince of Darkness. (laughs) When I saw the title, I thought for sure this episode was going to be about like some satanic cult type thing. I was like, how appropriate for Halloween. We're just in time. Oh, yeah, speaking of which, happy Halloween. Oh, it's actually, yeah, we're recording this episode on the actual Halloween, so. Yes. Forgive us if you're you're over Halloween by the time you hear it. <laughs> <laughs> we open up with a couple in an intense conversation at a fancy restaurant. Of course. About how the wife doesn't <laughs> want to go to some event and blah, blah, blah. Her in-laws don't speak English and she doesn't speak Spanish and I'm just like, cut, cut it out. I feel like this is always, like, their favorite thing to do is a couple fighting about the woman's, or, like, the in-laws. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, enough. Um, Oh, but I got a, one of my guesses for the season was an opening with a couple in an intense conversation. So, I get one Mm, of those. Good job. Yay. Yep. And the two of them are with their young daughter, and they cut to the wait staff in the back room, arguing over nothing, and then, blow. We hear gunshots ringing out from the from the dining area. So back in the dining area, there's a table flipped over. The kid is screaming, but just politely sitting at the table. Like, is Ter- is Teresa there? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh yeah, the Teresa's there, and her child was left unattended. <laughs> her kid is the the kid is just screaming at the table like mommy, daddy, but she's not getting up. Or anything. It's very strange, because both of her parents appear to be dead at this point. Um, but, you know, just mildly mm-hmm. upset. Yeah. Logan and Soretta are on the scene, and they're asking questions to some very dicey guests who can't really remember anything. They're like, oh, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. And uh, the detectives suppose that maybe the killer was sending a message for everyone to keep quiet or the same thing will happen to them. We soon learn from another cop that the victims were Natalie and Manuel Ortega, and he says they were 27 and 28, respectively, and that she expired before her library card. Oh, God. Don't quit your day job. No. They also, the writer, especially. <laughs> amen. So we find out soon that while Natalie has passed on, Manuel is struggling to survive, 
So he, you know, might still be around. And they note that the table was actually set for four, even though only three of them were there. So we wonder who didn't make it to dinner. Mm. So the opening credits roll, and I had some time. So I decided to experiment with an old dial-up modem. I connected Mm. to the internet through AOL, played a few rounds of snood, (laughs) but then someone called my landline, so I got kicked right off. (laughs) How apropos that we were talking about AOL and Netscape. Seriously. So the credits wind down, and we have the detectives talking to Cragen, who supposes that this must be drug-related because the family was Colombian, and maybe Mm. they were somehow in the biz. Real nice, Cragen. Yeah. The detectives go to question the closest relatives, who are the surviving daughter who we've seen and the paternal grandmother, and she explains that they moved here from Bogota uh, in Colombia, which is where... Davy's family is from, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. I was like, ooh. So she says she knows what people say about her community, and they say, or Soretta says, it's an uncomfortable stereotype. Um, yeah, one that they're actively <laughs> applying in this moment. <laughs> it, literally, it's an ugly stereotype that you just brought up. <laughs> right. And she goes on to say that her son went to a top school, and her daughter-in-law was in the junior league. I don't even know what the junior league is, but I've only ever heard it in shows like this where they're talking about fancy people. I'm, I'm going to assume it's kind of like on Gilmore Girls, like the Daughters of the American Revolution kind of thing. You <laughs> oh, know, yes. it's like the just the fancy club that everybody's a member of. Like in Golden Girls when Blanche goes to the, uh, <laughs> the old Daughters of the South meetings. I can't believe yes, that it's like yes. racist. Yes. <laughs> So the whole time that the the paternal grandmother is speaking, by the way, her granddaughter is sitting on her lap like an American Girl doll, <laughs> like <laughs> completely silent, blank faced. And they're like, they ask the little girl, was there a fourth guest that they expected? And she says no, but she's clearly lying. And then they go to talk to Manuel's boss after this. And he worked at a travel agency. I... What are travel agencies for? Like, getting cheap tickets? Well, or they book, like, the the they, events you do? I've always wondered Yeah, this. they can kind of, like, help coordinate. Like, they should be knowledgeable about the destination and be able to, like, uh, connect you with local guides and, and schedule all of that. Like, mm. when my family went to Ireland, there was, like, 30 of us. And so it was helpful. We used a, an agency because then it was helpful to, like... They coordinated, like, buses that were large enough for the group and, you know, picked the restaurants that could accommodate a group of 30 and stuff like that. And do they... It was kind of handy. They help with your, like, hotel and plane tickets and stuff, too? Yes. If you haven't already gotten, like, the plane tickets, but yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, this is what Manuel did for a living. (laughs) And uh, they, they ask about, you know, Manuel to the boss, and he says he was a great employee, and they ask about... You know, what about his trips from Colombia to New York? That's what we're really interested in. And he gets where they're going, and he insists that he and Manuel left their country disappointed over any sort of drug activity going on there, and they did not look back, and they are no part of it. Mm -hmm. They have a sort of smarmy conversation after this on the street about getting a warrant to search Manuel's apartment, and then they proceed to do so. And they find in Manuel's apartment records of all of his clients making round-trip flights to Colombia and Logan asks Soretta, how many times do you visit your family in the motherland, Big Daddy? 
I excused myself, and when I finished up-chucking my breakfast, <laughs> I, yeah. I returned to find um, them finding a gun in Manuel's closet, just mm-hmm. hanging out. So, <laughs> while at ballistics, Soretta catches wind that all 22 of Manuel's clients were on a federal drug list for smuggling, and then our favorite ballistics expert, Dr. Quinn Annie Oakley Lady... Walks in saying the gun was very unusual and had a hard time. She has a really hard time containing how giddy she is. And she says. (laughs) Always. Always. She says, doesn't that raise a flag for you? And Logan says, my flag hasn't been raised for weeks. And she says, well, this will hoist your colors. This is, what is this, porn? I mean, I bad porn, really. Bad. So there's a, a series of books uh, that I really liked initially. They're not good, but um, it's a series of books called... Danielle Steele? Uh, no, 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 but close. It's um, The author is Laurel K. Hamilton, and it's a series of books about a, a detective who also can raise the dead. Mm. Um and, like, the first few books were sort of about, like, detective work and and also some fantasy elements, of course. And, like, they were good and interesting. And then at some point, she just straight up turned them into porn. Like, <laughs> legitimately <laughs> talking about the size of penises and, like, how they felt. Like, it was just straight up porn at some point. So it went from, like, vampire raising the dead detective stuff to just porn. Little hoist your colors. Oh, <laughs> So... They find out that the gun matches very closely to a hit on a dealer named Felix Arias, who was returning from Colombia at the time. And when they take this info to Kraken, he magically remembers out of nowhere, oh, there was a guy who flew in from Colombia who looked like a young Elvis, who they continue to refer to as Elvis randomly through the episode. It's very confusing because this Mm -hmm. guy's got like three or four names, and one of them is unnecessarily Elvis. But he was supposedly a hitman for the cartel, and they realized that if their theory is correct, then the barely recovering, clinging to life Manuel at the hospital is in danger because he didn't finish the job, so to speak. They're more concerned with the optics of the case than his life, unfortunately, but they regardless want him alive. Uh-huh. And they're going to go circle back to his mother for more info. And if, she's, if he's involved, she will know more information. They get to her place, and by the way, she's definitely going to have to be in her next fashion court because she's making some bold choices. Not all of which I don't agree with, but... (laughs) They threaten to make a judge order her granddaughter to be a material witness if she doesn't talk. And she's like, Uh fine. And she says, Felix Arias, the man that was killed by the gun that Manuel had, was aggressively interested in Manuel's wife, Natalie, and she told her son... Don't do anything rash. Don't shoot anybody. Mm-hmm. She also confesses that the fourth guest at the dinner was to be Manuel's boss, who we met a little earlier, who, by the way, needs to get his hair under control. <laughs> so off they go, and they find him to be uncooperative, and they just arrest him. <laughs> like, okay, you're not listening. You're not doing what we want. You're arrested. Right. Afterwards, they present him what they find with what they find as the um, contents of his safe, which he would not open for them. And in an interrogation room, they find out that he was the travel agent for the man they believe shot Manuel, the one they're calling Elvis, Mm -hmm. whose Mm -hmm. actual name is Javier Gaetan. They threaten heavy sentencing, and he tells them, okay, all I do is book the flights. I book the flights for these people, 
this guy has an alias. I knew him as Paolo Esteban, um, but I don't know anything else. And Manuel was a friend of mine, but he was stupid because he killed one of their jefes. That's like boss, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so they find Gaetan's hotel room that, you know, the travel agency kindly got for him. And they find that uh, while he was there during this failed hit, he used the phone several times to call a Sandra Alvarez. They go to visit her at work, and she's, you know, at first cagey as well, dicey, doesn't want to say anything, but mm-hmm. eventually they threaten her as well, and she says, I, I barely knew him, so they arrest her as well. <laughs> and <laughs> she admits that, okay, fine, he stayed with me, but he was just staying with me, and I don't know too much else about his doings or goings on, but he is supposed to be back later that afternoon. So, Cragen hatches a scheme to be ready to safely apprehend Gaetan when he attempts to make contact with Sandra. But, he's interrupted by a call with bad news. Manuel has passed away, and the news has already gotten the story. So, Gaetan might end up fleeing before they even get the chance to get him. Mm. They decide they're going to try anyway. They set up a little sting where Logan has a Zach Morris-style cell phone the size of a shoebox, which I just <laughs> loved that detail. He pulls up mm-hmm. for a second, but I was like, <gasps> And the target enters the courtyard while they're all looking out the window. They play this, like, very serious music. It's like this big, massive thing. And there's this very anticlimactic moment where the police surround him, like, casually. <laughs> Yeah, like they shake the camera around to try to make it more dramatic. But even yeah. the cops that are like running towards him are like, they look like could, half-assing could, it. It could be ballet. <laughs> and then so they arrest him, and the order section begins. In some sort of closed court setting, Stone is attempting to hold Gaetan for longer, but he's claiming, I don't know who Gaetan even is. My name is Paolo Esteban, and. Uh, they have Sandra in the room, and she's like, uh, yeah, his name is Paolo. And they're like, girl, you told us this was Javier Gaetan. And she's yeah. like, uh, you made me do that. I, that's Pablo. Mm-hmm. And she's like, and they're like, okay, fine. So they find out they only have enough to hold him for four more days, so they better get going. Mm-hmm. Back to ballistics. Logan, Soretta, and the gun-crazy ballistics lady. She, they're literally back to the drawing board. And I mean literally. They have a chalkboard. <laughs> And Logan is, like, looking at a poorly drawn, I'm being generous, calling it a map of the crime scene, mm-hmm. which is just a restaurant. It might, it's <laughs> more poorly drawn than the restaurant probably has to number the tables for the waitstaff. <laughs> and he's, like, randomly drawing chalk on the, uh, on the chalkboard. Logan is trying to, like, determine the direction the shooter would have went. And Gun Crazy says... Are you interested in learning the mambo or are we going somewhere? (laughs) I kind of like that. (laughs) In any event, the big bombshell is that Gaetan slash Esteban is left-handed and he would have needed a particular gun that they tracked down to a local dealer named Tommy Bruno. But he is incarcerated, so they decide to pose as old friends, Logan and Soretta, and spend some time on the phone calling around trying to track down the right client who may have sold the gun that he got from this incarcerated gun guy. 
They find the right guy who agrees to meet with them, and he has. They set up like a little sting again. Soretta is posing as a client, and the guy comes in, and he's a total lunatic from the jump. <laughs> and the man ends up shooting Soretta in the stomach twice. Yeah. And it actually was very dramatic. Like, everyone busts out. They jump on the guy. Soretta falls to the ground, and Logan runs to him. And Soretta, like, weakly says, you know, 35 years, and I've never even had to wield my weapon. And the scene fades out with him gasping for air, saying he can't breathe. And I actually got a little emotional. Yeah. Logan is the dick who should have died earlier on, and his, like, decent associates with integrity most of the time are just dropping left and Yeah, right. they're the ones that have, like, the the voices of reason, as much as this show has, are yes. the ones who are, you know, taking the, the risks and, and not reaping the rewards. <laughs> There's a lot of guilt in the next scene, but Robinette points out that they still don't have what they need to charge Gaetan. And Logan's obviously very upset, but Soretta is alive. He may be paralyzed, but he is alive. We don't know yet about anything else. And Cragen says, go home. We'll handle this. Schiff does not want to take the case or take any risks. Um, he says they don't have anything, and there's too much at risk. People, More people can end up as targets, including the judge. And Stone convinces him that they're going to take it anyway. So I'm going to take that as a Schiff not wanting to take the case, but Stone taking it anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Stone goes to try to cut a deal with Gaetan for manslaughter one and a sentence of three to nine years. But... They don't want any jail time at all, so they're going to go to trial. On trial, the shooter confirms he sold the gun to Gaetan, but the defense insists they don't even know who Gaetan is. This is Pablo Esteban. <laughs> Manuel's mother is on the stand, and she confirms that she has heard of Gaetan, and she says he's known as El Diablo, the Prince of Darkness. Um, I'm not trying to be insensitive, but El Diablo yeah. does not translate to the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> No. <laughs> but this this episode wanted to really uh, amp up the dramatics. Yes. She confirms that the man that her son Manuel killed, the Arias guy we heard about earlier, Felix Arias. Yeah. Yeah. He threatened that if anything should happen to him, she told he told Manuel that the prince would come. <laughs> On cross-examination, she cannot confirm that the man I almost just started singing the Cinderella song like uh <laughs> one day my prince will come, isn't that? Yes. The name of one of her songs. I thought you were going to say Prince Ali. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, is still one of my favorite songs from Aladdin. Yeah. In I case you're it. curious. In case you, you didn't read my article in Tiger Beat. <laughs> mentioning my likes and dislikes. <laughs> they try again with Sandra, and they tell her, you have two options. We'll either release you, and you can take your chances on the streets, and see if you don't you survive. Or, <laughs> you can testify that Gaetan is Esteban. Either way, you're probably in danger of dying, so figure it out. Which is terribly unfair. Yes. But she agrees to testify because she'd rather take her chances in, you know, with protection from them versus, like, going out on the street. She's already said too much. Within one scene change, she changes her mind and goes back. And so Stone finds some case law that allows him to have her testimony read into court without her being present for cross-examination, and she could stay safe. And uh, it's all due to the fact that she was threatened, and the judge agrees. So, the testimony is read in court in the next scene, confirming that Gaetan is, in fact, 
the real name of Pablo Esteban and that he told her he killed two people that day. And the jury finds him guilty of both murder charges, unsurprisingly. Mm -hmm. The judge assures him he will face jail time. It will be harsh at sentencing. And in the next scene, we have a surprise twist. (laughs) Gunfire is heard outside the court building, which I fully expected. But the man who was shot was not who I was expecting to be shot. Gaetan is lying there shot. He's dead and in custody they have gotten the father of one of his victims from two years ago, who we've never even heard about until now. <laughs> At all. It's just some random guy who's like, he killed my son two years ago. It's not even one of the cases they brought up. It's like the bone collector all over oh. again. <laughs> I still have not seen that, but you always talk about that movie. So against Stone's moral compass, Robinette and Schiff agree that a deal should be made um, the jury will never convict this man who killed Gaetan because, you know, they're looking at him almost like a hero. Mm-hmm. And so he pleads guilty to manslaughter with a sentence of four to 12 years. But he asks the judge, can I get two days before sentencing to say goodbye to my wife? And they're like, sure. Another surprise, though. Turns out this whole thing was a big act. Yes, his son was killed, but nobody really knows by who. It was someone in the cartel. And this grieving father also works for the cartel, and mm-hmm. he killed Ga- he killed Gaetan at their orders because you know Gaetan was caught and they were afraid he was going to talk, and now he and his wife, who he was going to say goodbye to, are on the run. <laughs> so Schiff gets a call in the last scene when he's in the room with Stone and Robinette, just like discussing what just happened, and he finds out that the gun dealer. The crazy person who shot Soretta was murdered, mm-hmm. had his throat slit at Rikers. Manuel's travel agency boss was killed in his kitchen. His mother, the paternal grandmother from before, quote-unquote, fell out of a window. And his daughter was picked up by her uncle. And the episode ends with Stone saying, she doesn't have an uncle. Damn. <laughs> Damn. Everybody <sighs> dies. Everybody dies. Wow. That was an intense one, I gotta say. Yeah. I was gripped. I was gripped. It was definitely a change in tone for a Law & Order, I feel like. Oh, sure. I was edge of my seat. Well, are you ready to hear the crime that the episode was based on? I am. I I mean, I have a kind of a guess, but I don't have a lot of knowledge of the crime, but just based on the episode. Mm -hmm. Is it going to be Pablo Escobar? It is not, oh, although okay. I do mention him in my in my story. Interesting. Um, I thought that yeah. Pablo Esteban was way too close and, like, based on the nature of the crimes and stuff. So this episode was not actually based on any specific incident. So mm. I have picked possibly what I think might be the best story that has ever been told. Whoa, okay. <laughs> the best story ever told. Yes. Is it... So, an episode of Charmed. <laughs> uh, no, sadly. What I'll say is there are pieces of the story that I'm about to tell you that come from one really, really well done article. Hmm. And the author, or the journalist rather, is 
Azam Ahmed, and it's, uh, I'll tell you the title of the article later because I don't want to spoil anything, but want to give that journalist full credit because a lot of the specifics I got from his article, and then I did a lot of contextual research with uh, stuff around it, if that makes sense. Yes, that makes total sense. Shout out. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So this episode, or rather this story, is in the context of drug wars that are happening in Mexico. And the story I'm telling you is much more contemporary than the Law and Order episode. So... Mexico, currently, there is a lot of wealth disparity and economic instability in Mexico due to a number of factors, but, um, or sorry, due to a number of factors, but especially because there is a lack of employment opportunities, Mexico has a high rate of people who are living in or at risk of living in poverty. And so that contributes to a lot of folks who are willing to participate in the drug trade in order to survive. Okay. So drug cartels have been present in Mexico for many, many years, but initially the the Mexican cartels were sort of more middlemen between the Colombian cocaine trade and the United States. Uh, prior, prior to kind of getting involved with the Colombian cartels, Mexico was primarily trading in marijuana to the United States. They weren't doing as much of like cocaine and those kinds of drugs. Okay. So... The cartels in Mexico, their power started to grow after the Cali cartel and the Medellin Medellin cartel, which are two prominent and powerful international drug cartels from Colombia, they were kind of mm, taken down or they fell apart. And I actually talked a bit about the Medellin cartel in a previous episode where I talked about the BCCI banking scandal around the end of season two. Yeah, yeah. Um... So I talked about how there was like a big takedown at a fake wedding uh, as part of the takedown of the Medellin cartel. So when those two cartels kind of fell apart, uh, you know, power abhors a vacuum. And so there was kind of a, a need or there was a space for folks to fill that role as these powerful drug cartels. And so that actually began to be something that cartels in Mexico started to assume. So in 2006, Mexico declared a war on drugs, which might sound familiar to some of us Mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And as some of us in the United States might know, it didn't go well and it didn't go great in Mexico either. So one of the people that was arrested during the war on drugs was a man named Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, who was the head of a alliance between several cartels. So he had kind of been this unifying figure amongst the cartels that had gotten folks working together instead of working against each other. But when he was arrested, everything kind of fell apart. And so the Guadalajara cartel, the Juarez cartel, the Sinaloa cartel, the Tijuana cartel, and the Sonora cartel all started to Um, really vie for power and control over various territories and trafficking routes um, once this alliance fell apart. I imagine that was uh, terrifying for everyone involved and everyone around. 
Oh, yes. So let me tell you a little bit about that. So the Mexican cartels started, began to dominate the drug market, whereas, again, I said before, it was kind of the Colombian cartels. So they, these Mexican cartels now account for more than 90% of the cocaine that enters the United States. And when these cartels started vying for power, things got really violent. So an article from 2019 stated that the war between the cartels and incidents of violence had reached record levels in Mexico, with cartels having like open gunfire in streets across the country. The increased uh, power of the cartel also led to tens of thousands of abductions and murders. And the people who have been abducted by the cartel or go missing are called the desaparecidos, which means the missing. Conservative estimates are that more than 73,000 people have been reported missing and that more than 200,000 people have been killed as a result of this cartel power struggle. In in what like period of time? I think it's like uh, I want to say in the last 15 years Damn. is kind of the scope of time that most of these articles were talking about. Wow. So head of the National Search Commission, whose name is Carla Quintana, states that the numbers could easily be double or triple that amount. So those who are disappeared, and I'm using that as like a an active verb because these people are taken. Mm-hmm. So those who are disappeared were often kidnapped for robbery or ransom or in retaliation for like acting against the cartel or informing on the cartel. But a lot of people were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Or there, there are a number of stories as well about how there are a lot of abductions and murders that are mistaken identity. Like they got the wrong person when they were killing this person. Oh, that's terrible. I mean, it's yeah. all terrible, but yes, it's <laughs> yes. so terrible for people who were literally completely uninvolved, unrelated, just yes. going about their lives. Yeah. So the reason why there's such a discrepancy between the reported missing, which I said was 73,000, and the estimated killed are because there are a lot of abductions that are never reported to the police or any sort of governmental agency because there is often retaliation against the family if that happens. And what's really interesting is as I was researching the story, I was listening to another one of my favorite podcasts, Let's Not Meet, which uh, highly recommend. If you like creepy stories, it's phenomenal. And one of the stories in the week was about this man who lived in Mexico and his sister was like kind of a high profile investigator in the government. And he tells the story of like suddenly a car pulls up in front of his car and behind his car to keep him from going anywhere. And they like smash his window in and punch him and like try to abduct him. But he manages to escape this kidnapping attempt. And like now he's in... Um, he, like, lives in some sort of area where, like, the government protects him and, and his family is there now because they were going after him solely that, so that they had leverage against his sister who worked in the, the government. Isn't that scary? Yeah. So anyway, love that podcast. Really good story that week. Yeah. And uh, definitely recommend you go check that out. Yeah, that's a good one. I haven't I listened to that one in a while. Yeah. So since 2017, more than 3,900 clandestine burial sites have been found. The largest was a mass grave containing more than 300 bodies. 
In oh 2014. God. Yeah. In 2014, 43 students were abducted from a college by armed men wearing face masks in police uniforms. Um, and that that incident caused huge uproar because it was a, a huge abduction, a, a large number of people at this college. And there was a lot of uproar because the people who abducted them were wearing police uniforms. Mm-hmm. And so there was this perception that corrupt police were like intertwined with the cartels. This resulted in President Andres Manuel López Obrador creating the Truth and Justice Commission to assist in investigations Hmm, and, like, to track down missing persons. Very quickly, the commission discovered the bodies of 39 missing people, but none of them were the students that had been taken from the college. And I don't know, based on my research, I couldn't see, I couldn't figure out if they had ever found these 43 people who were abducted. I think it might still be, like, in an open investigation. So a number of the articles that I read had quotes from people who had missing friends or family members, and they described Mexico's justice system as very poor or very corrupt. And one of the articles stated that organized crime is deeply entwined with the government, and members of the cartels often include, like, powerful businessmen, police, and politicians. And so it's very challenging for a lot of folks to get justice when you don't really know if the people you're trying to report crimes to are actually members of this organization who have orchestrated the crime. Isn't that all too often the case? Yeah. So one politician who was interviewed in one of the articles I read, um, and under condition of anonymity, because he was like, I don't, I don't want anybody to know who I am. He said that even officials within the government don't know who they can trust. Sure. And the person, in fact, who created the first Mexican drug cartel was a a man named Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, who was a judicial federal police agent. (laughs) So, again, I just want to clarify, I am not an expert on the Mexican justice system, but this is what a lot of the articles and people interviewed were saying. Mm -hmm. That politician was quoted as saying, Mexican authorities have routinely encouraged the notion that the victims of violence themselves were criminals and therefore had gotten what they deserved. (sighs) Which, you know, we've heard that before, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, they're runaways, they were, you know, selling drugs, they were using drugs, so they, you know, of course they went missing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, sometimes that could be the, the result of, like, apathy, or it could be you know, people in the cartel not wanting to allow for any investigation, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, Further complicating the ability for Mexican citizens to receive justice if somebody is missing or murdered is that there are uh, a lot of governmental prosecutors who are unwilling to bring up charges for fear of retaliation from the cartel, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you're a prosecutor who's investigating and or... um, prosecuting folks for the crimes that they've committed, you can often become a target yourself. I mean, that's not surprising. We see that. We've seen that in some of the cases that we've covered. Where, like, a judge or a prosecutor gets targeted or the family gets targeted in instance where it's just one victim of one crime. You know what I mean? Can you imagine a whole organization who has people on the inside, allegedly? How could could you... I mean, I... I can't imagine 
anyone wants to take that risk. Yeah. So one article interviewed a prosecutor who stated that they would get the whenever they would get these types of cases where it looked like cartel involvement, they would just read them and file them away and do nothing with them. Only 2% of kidnappings are solved, and only 4% of homicides result in convictions. So just to give you a sense of the amount of justice that people are receiving. Yeah. In 2013, a man named Pedro, his last name is spelled H-U-E-S-C-A, I'm going to say Huesca, okay. who worked as an investigator in the district attorney's office, and him and his assistant, they were intercepted by armed men and never seen again. So he was this high-powered district attorney investigator, and he and his assistant were just abducted and disappeared. What a coincidence. Yeah. Their remains were later found in a mass grave, which contained more than 250 human skulls. So as you would expect, in addition to, you know, potential corruption in the police, uh, prosecutors being unwilling to prosecute or being a member of the cartel themselves, witnesses also often refuse to testify for fear of retaliation as well. So there's like seven layers of of roadblocks to anybody getting justice. Mm. In 2013, Human Rights Watch found that more than half of the disappearances had compelling evidence that members of the government had participated in the crime. So more than half. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So 74% of those who go missing and are murdered are men, the majority of which are between the ages of 15 and 35, which means that the majority of those who search for them are their women relatives, and most often their mothers. The civilian search parties that are kind of formed to look for the missing and murdered are often monitored and sometimes harassed by cartel lookouts. According to articles, cartel members may also be members of the search parties and intentionally lead the groups in the wrong direction. Or... They might inform the cartel of a search party, which makes all of them a target for the cartel. And one of them was quoted as saying, quote, we know they're always watching us. So even just searching for your missing or murdered loved one makes you a target. So the search parties are experienced in identifying clandestine grave sites because they have trained themselves to recognize changes in the soil that may indicate where bodies are buried. Mm-hmm. And and they have this practice of, as they search, they have these essentially like really long metal spears that they just stab into the ground when they suspect maybe there might be a, a gravesite there. And then when they remove them, they kind of smell the spike to see if they smell decay, which might indicate that there's a body buried there. And while many are searching for their missing family members, there's often little hope um, because the searchers are aware of the odds of locating, you know, your missing or murdered loved one. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the men who was searching, uh, he said, talking about his, I think his son, uh, Jesse Barajas, he said, he's not alive. No, they don't leave people alive. Once they take someone, they don't let you live. So it can often be difficult. <laughs> this I'm telling you, this is uh, just the levels of this are just wild. Yeah. So even if you find a body or a, potentially your missing loved one, it can be really difficult to have the body identified in part because there are many morgues that are not 
unable to perform genetic analysis. And so they, they can't identify whether or not this is the person that is being searched for. And when they are identified, the channels of communication back to the family are often broken. So one woman reported that she had been searching for her son for over four years when it was discovered that his body was in a morgue and had been identified a week after he went missing. She'd been searching for four years. Wow. Also, the morgues are literally overflowing with bodies. One article reported that independent investigators found more than 600 unidentified bodies when the morgue was only built to house 200. Oh, my God. And also, the morgue contained no cooling system, and so there were rats and bugs, which, you know, made decomposition and possibility of identifying people much more difficult. I mean, when they're finding these grave sites that contain hundreds of of bodies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, 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 how do you process that? What do you do with that? Yeah. Um, In one instance, a semi-truck was reported to the police for a foul odor and blood leaking out of the truck, and inside they found 273 homicide victims. That's the kind of thing you see, like, in a movie or a TV show, and you're like, that is so unbelievable. That is so outrageous. That's so fake. But it's really happening. Shit. So when the morgues were investigated for, you know, this, this overflow of bodies, it resulted in, like, kind of local protests in these cities But the article that I read said that it's noteworthy that what provoked the protests was not the large number of unidentified bodies, but rather the smell. And so it, like, the reason I point that out is the journalist was kind of talking about how the violence has become so commonplace that the folks are no longer kind of concerned about the amount of bodies, but it's just, it's making it difficult to, like, live in the same space because there are so many decomposing bodies they're like yeah 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 there's we get it there's a lot of uh a lot of death here but it's very inconvenient yeah it's a real inconvenience i mean that is terrible that it's become so commonplace that it's just part of their life yeah yes so as you might suspect um and as i mentioned before participating in organized searches for missing loved ones puts the searchers in a lot of danger in part because the searches are primarily on land that are controlled by a cartel. And as you can imagine, they don't really enjoy folks poking around on land that they either own or control. Mm -hmm. And so many family members receive death threats for continuing their search. And in one article, it stated that two searchers had been killed in the previous two months. So on average, a searcher is killed about once a month, based on this one article that I read. In fact, searchers often get really nervous if they do locate remains, because that can indicate that the cartel members could still be nearby in the area. And so some of the organizations that formed to search for the missing utilize drones, and the drones have this sensor technology that can be used to identify disturbed ground. And, and because these lands that they're searching are controlled by the cartel and it's dangerous to search them, these drones are also sometimes used as, like, lookouts to search for potential danger if there's, like, cartel vehicles or cartel people coming toward the search party. Mm-hmm. But the drone technology is expensive, and so it's not widely used or widely available. And, and so much of the searching is just the, you know, treading ground, stabbing the metal spears into the ground to see if there are bodies buried. And there is so much land to be searched because 
this is occurring literally across the entire country of Mexico. And so one article I read stated that if you were to pick seven random municipalities, statistically, one of them would contain the site of a mass grave. So this huge growth in cartel-related violence and murders has resulted in the formation of many collectives across Mexico, which lobby the government and search for the missing. Uh, There are more than 70 collectives across Mexico who are dedicated to searching for the missing and lobbying the government for changes. In 2020 alone, these collectives found more than 109 bodies. And this is the story of one woman who formed such a collective. And this is why I'm saying this is possibly the best story that has ever been told. Mm -hmm. So this woman's name is Miriam Rodriguez, and she was born February 5th, 1960 in San Fernando in the state of, uh, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but Tamaulipas, it's T-A-M-A-U-L-I-P-A-S. Okay. In 1996, Miriam gave birth to her daughter, Karen Alejandra Salinas Rodriguez, and they lived in the state of Tamaulipas, which is one of the states that is most impacted by cartel violence and organized crime. Robberies, kidnapping, gun battles, and carjacking are widespread throughout the state. And according to one article, criminal groups would target buses to maximize the number of people that they could hold for ransom. So if you were, like, in a large group, you were a greater target. Right, because that's, like, the opposite of what you would think. Yeah, totally, yeah. Entire cities in the state would become ghost towns because hundreds of families fled the violence in the state of Tamaulipas. Some cities were even burnt to the ground by the cartel. So, like, uh, many of the cities kind of, like, right along trafficking routes would be just totally empty and devoid of humanity because so many people had either been killed or had left or fled the violence. And in 2002, or 2012, Miriam's daughter Karen, who was 16 at the time, disappeared. Miriam received calls demanding a ransom for Karen's return, which resulted in Miriam obtaining a line of credit from a bank that offered that was that this was so common they were like oh yeah we offer loans for ransom payments like that that's how common it was <laughs> and the reason that this was so common and the the practice of kidnapping and ransoming was so common is that the cartels were fighting against each other and that is really expensive and so they needed a lot of money to finance the fights against each other and so they would kidnap people get ransom and then most often kill the person Jeez. so miriam and the rodriguez family followed the demands exactly as they had been stated from the ransomers um, mr rodriguez got the cash that was required in a bag and left it near like a a specific location near a health clinic. And they were told, leave it there. And then once we confirm the money is there, we will meet you at this cemetery and we will reunite you with Karen. So they dropped the cash at the health clinic. They head to the cemetery where they were told to wait. And neither Karen nor the kidnappers ever showed up at the cemetery. But the money was, of course, taken. So Miriam created an organization both to help locate her daughter, Karen, and also to support the many other missing child parents. And so she formed what was called the um, Colectivo de Desaparecidos, or the Vanished Collective. And it involved members of over 600 families who were searching for missing family members. So it was this really big organization. Damn. I like that name, too. 
Yes, yes. So Miriam, of course, wanted justice for her daughter and wanted those involved in her abduction and likely murder to face consequences. And so she began searching for her daughter's killers across Mexico. And she started with a mechanic who had been kidnapped along with Karen. And as I said, there are a lot of instances of like mistaken identity or wrong place, wrong time. And so this was one of those where they intended to kidnap Karen and they she was in the presence of this mechanic, I guess. And so he got caught up in it and they didn't really want him. So they let him return home, which is in and of itself is pretty surprising. Mm-hmm. But Miriam was able to question him to, like, get every single piece of information she could. And somehow she was able to pass along a message to the cartel asking them for a meeting, which surprisingly they agreed to. Wow. And she uh, she met them at this restaurant. And while she was with them, she heard one of their walkie-talkies buzz. And she heard somebody mention the name Sama. And so this woman is, like, clinging to every piece of information she can to try to track down anything that will lead her to her daughter's killers and the recovery of her daughter or her daughter's body. Miriam would often, as she was conducting these investigations, she would travel with a handgun, she would travel with fake ID, she had, like, disguises to hide her identity, she would cut her hair and dye it different colors, she would pose as an elected official or a healthcare worker or a pollster so that she could meet with family members of the people that she was kind of trying to track down and would get them to give her names and addresses and other little pieces of information by posing as these sort of official uh, positions and, you know, kind of changing up her identity. Smart. Yeah. So Miriam would, through these little pieces of information, she would learn people's schedules. She would learn where they grew up, where they worked, their habits, and information about their childhoods. And all of this she would use to seek out more information about her daughter's killers. And... Ultimately, her investigation led her to the Zeta Cartel, um, which is a splinter of the Gulf Cartel formed by former Special Forces soldiers, which um, they point out in the article about Miriam, um, the LA Times article, because the Gulf Cartel, or rather the Zeta Cartel, formed by Special Forces soldiers are like the most military trained people. And so they're often like the most violent um folks who have access to weaponry kind of stuff, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So her search led her to, she of course did all of these interviews in person and and searching around. um, And she also did a lot of searching online. And she kind of struck gold one day when she came across a photograph of a man and his name was tagged Sama, which remember she had heard at this meeting with the cartel. Right. So she looked at the photo and she immediately recognized him as one of the men from the lunch. And so she's like, okay, this man knows what happened to my daughter. So what she did first was she tracked down the woman that was in the photo with him. And she started observing this woman, the store that she worked at. She learned this woman's schedule. She kind of stalked her for weeks until she really understood how this woman's life operated. And she would kind of stay until the closing shifts at the store that the woman worked at, hoping that one of these times this man named Sama would come to meet her because it looked like they were in a relationship together. Mm -hmm. 
and she was successful. So one of the nights that she was observing this woman, the man named Sama showed up to kind of like pick her up from work, and she followed them to their home address. And what she did then was she disguised herself as like a pollster, and she went around to folks in the neighborhood to gather all the information she could about the people living at that address and this man named Sama. And she would get leads pretty frequently uh, to folks involved in her daughter's disappearance, and she would report it to authorities and kind of give them leads to investigate, but a lot of them just refused. And so she kind of had taken this up on her own because the elect- the police and investigators weren't willing to do any of it. Right. So she gave the police Sama's information and and told them that she he was likely involved in her daughter's disappearance and she had information that linked him to the Zeta cartel. They refused to do anything about it. And at this point, Sama had left town. But by a ridiculous stroke of luck, Miriam's son, Luis, was working in a shop outside of this town that Miriam had found Sama living in. And he spotted Sama outside of his shop. And so he called his mother immediately, and she sped over there and began tracking down Sama and keeping an eye on him until the police arrived. So she's like literally following this man around town on the phone with the police, telling them his whereabouts until they arrive and arrest him. That's brave. Yeah, very brave. So when they arrive, they arrest and interrogate Sama, and he gave up information on other cartel members, one of them who was only 18 years old, who was involved in the abduction of Miriam's daughter, Karen. And uh, his name was Christian Jose Zapata Gonzalez, and during the interrogation of him, Miriam was seated outside, and she could kind of listen to the interrogation as it was happening, and he was 18 years old, he was scared, of course, and whatever. And she heard him say that he was hungry. And so Miriam went and made a sandwich and got a drink and brought it to him. And everybody was like, why are you doing this? Like, he's one of the people who was involved in your daughter's abduction. And she said that um, when she heard him, it was like hearing her own child and that no matter what had happened to her or her daughter, above everything, Miriam said that she was a mother. And so she heard this 18-year-old who was scared and, and hungry, and she, even though he was involved in her daughter's disappearance, she couldn't not be a caring person wow. and do something nice for him. Wow. So... Due to this kindness, the the LA Times article that talks about Miriam said that Gonzalez, the man who was being interrogated, told her the location of the ranch where Karen had been killed and buried. So because she had done this nice act, he gave her that information. And so Miriam and the police went to the this ranch, and there Miriam came across some of Karen's belongings, and they found a mass grave containing human remains that DNA testing would later confirm some of which belonged to her daughter, Karen. Aww. So at, at this point, her daughter is is dead, but she has at least located her and is able to, you know, begin the mourning process because at least now she has answers. Right. I mean, she probably presumed this o- yeah. outcome already, but it's... Yeah. Yeah. But it's hard to not ever have an answer, yeah. so... So what they learned is based on the decomposition is that by the time that Miriam had paid the ransom, Karen had already been killed. Mm. So 
the article had a quote that I love about Miriam's like personality and behavior. And it says, most officials held a grudging respect for Mrs. Rodriguez, despite complaining about her foul language and pugnacious manner. And I just love that, that she's this foul mouthed (laughs) mother who is going up against the cartel to search for her daughter. And on behalf of all of these other families, it's just kind of amazing. This woman's life needs to be a movie because it it just gets even more impressive from here. I think, I mean, she's doing things that law enforcement and the justice system are afraid to do. Yeah. Even with all of their, Strength in numbers and resources and, and all resources. that. Resources, yeah, yeah. So let me give you an example of her pugnacious manner. Mm-hmm. So Miriam had tracked down a man named Enrique Yoel Rubio Flores, who was involved in her daughter's disappearance. He was one of the men involved. And she visited his grandmother, and she kind of interviewed her, and and the grandmother told her that uh, Enrique had always been kind of a troublemaker, but he had cleaned up his act, he had gotten away from the cartel, and now he is attending church, and he's an upstanding man. <laughs> Undeterred, however, Miriam started to attend that church's services until she spotted Enrique. During service, she called the police, who came and arrested Flores in the middle of the chapel in the middle of service, and reportedly, members of the congregation were begging Miriam for mercy because he had supposedly turned his life around. And when they begged her for mercy, her she scoffed and replied, where was his compassion when they killed my daughter? Right. And so had the police take him off. Wow. In possibly my favorite story about Miriam... In one incident, her search led her to a man who had worked as a flower vendor before he joined the cartel, and he was one of the men who participated in Karen's abduction and murder. Miriam had been tracking him for over a year, stalking him online, tricking his friends and relatives into giving her information on his involvement and his whereabouts, and one day she received a phone call from a widow who had her, presumably her husband has had been uh, a victim of cartel violence and she provided her, Miriam with information on the man's current location so Miriam's at home she gets this phone call she dashes out the house puts on a trench coat and a baseball cap sticks her gun in her purse and and like races over to this area where the woman had said he was located And at first, it was kind of like a busy downtown area of San Fernando, so it took her a little while to actually find him. But she spotted him and kind of began following him. But unfortunately, he recognized her, and when she got too close, he started running. Miriam, who, by the way, is 56 years old at this point, is just bolts after him and starts sprinting through the streets of San Fernando, chasing this man, holding onto her gun in her purse— and she manages to catch him. She grabs him by his search, by his shirt, and she wrestles him against the wall and presses her handgun into his back and tells him that if he moves, she's going to shoot him. Damn. And she holds him at gunpoint until authorities arrive to arrest the man. Wow. Miriam's search resulted in multiple threats against her from criminal organizations. And despite asking the police for special protection, the LA Times article reported that the local authorities did nothing to protect her. (sighs) Miriam was reported to have told a friend, quote, I don't care if they killed me. I died the day my daughter was killed. I want to end this. I'm going to take out the people who hurt my daughter and they can do whatever they want to me. Wow. 
So some of the men that Miriam tracked down were dead at this point, because again, cartel violence, and some others were in jail. But over the course of three years of searching, Miriam successfully tracked down every member of the cartel responsible for her daughter's killing. These men were, you know, some of them were out of the cartel now and kind of like living as taxi drivers or car salesmen or babysitters. And in total, Miriam was responsible for the arrest of over 10 men who were involved in her daughter's murder. She received a lot of notoriety from citizens uh, in Mexico, and she became kind of a figure of resistance against the cartel and against governmental corruption. And so the title of the article that I didn't want to read or didn't want to say at the beginning is she stalked her daughter's killers across Mexico one by one. And I just, it's amazing. But the story doesn't end there. I was going to say that is incredible. And the fact that she... I mean, it's not surprising she got all of these threats and yeah. and all this, but the fact that she survived through all of it and right. was undeterred. Right. She made it three years of searching and found 10 men before anything like it had happened to her, which yeah. is pretty remarkable. Yeah. So in March of 2017, two dozen prisoners escaped from a prison in an area nearby San, uh, San Fernando. And a number of whom were men that Miriam had tracked down and had gotten arrested. On Mother's Day, uh, May 10th, 2017, so about two months after this prison break, Miriam had left her office around 10 p.m. to drive home. Now, Miriam, (laughs) she's such a badass. She had recently broken her foot chasing somebody else down who was involved in her daughter's (laughs) killing. And so she was on crutches and she was kind of moving slowly because her foot was broken. And when she arrived home, she was getting out of her car kind of slowly when four men closed in on her and shot her multiple times at close range. Oh, my God. Her husband was in the apartment. uh, You know, she was right outside and he was watching TV. And when he heard the gunfire, he ran outside. Um, and saw the gunmen fleeing, but they he wasn't able to like get a lot of information on them because they were running away. And he found Miriam face down on the ground, hand inside her handbag, clutching her gun. Miriam had been shot 12 times, and unfortunately she died as a result of her injuries en route to the hospital. And she was 56 years old, as I said. Damn. On May 14th, four days after Miriam's murder... Police managed to track down the driver of the vehicle who had transported the men, because I think the the husband saw the vehicle as it was fleeing the scene. And he told police that he had been hired to transport three men who were tasked with killing Miriam. And he identified them with their nicknames, which were El Diablo, El Aluche, and El Flaco. And El Diablo and El Flaco, I was able to translate. El Aluche, I didn't, I couldn't translate that word, so I'm not sure what that one means. Mm In an arrest that was not connected in any way to Miriam's murder, the police just happened to get extremely lucky, and as part of this other arrest, they caught El Flaco. And so he was arrested and is currently serving more than 41 years in prison, though just for charges unrelated to Miriam's murder. He has yet to be charged with any connection to her killing, but he is uh, was supposedly one of the men that was identified, and he's now in prison. On October 14th of 2017, police arrested El Aluche. In October of 2018, they arrested El Diablo. 
they received sentences of 15 years and 10 years, respectively. But those who had ordered Miriam's assassination have yet to be identified. So after her death, Miriam's son, Luis Salinas Rodriguez, uh, he would come to take over his mother's work in leading the Vanished Collective. He described the sentences that these two men received as ridiculous, which I think is fair. Agreed. (laughs) And the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in Mexico added in a statement in regard to kind of like all of the murders around cartel violence. Beyond, the quote was, beyond their murder, it is imperative to address the structural factors that have placed the families of the disappeared person in a grave situation of vulnerability. Which I agree with. Mm Mm-hmm. Her death caused a number of protests, both in the United States and in Mexico, um, lobbying for the government of both countries to ensure the safety of human rights workers like Miriam. One article mentioned that many people were very upset that uh, President Enrique Peña Nieto failed to ever comment on Miriam's murder because, again, she was this sort of, I don't want to say figurehead, but sort of this, what's the word I'm looking for? Symbol? Sure. Hero? She was kind of this symbol, yeah, this symbolic folk hero of the resistance. And so they were really upset that the president never said anything about her. But at the time, the article stated that he had enough time to tweet with Leonardo DiCaprio about porpoises. Oh my God. Which is such a random thing, but it's just so indicative of how much care uh, he had for Miriam's death and, and the victims of cartel violence. Yeah, yeah, seriously. In response to Miriam's murder, Amnesty International issued a statement which said in part that Mexico had become, quote, a very dangerous place for those who are bravely dedicating their lives to the search for the disappeared. The nightmare which they face not knowing the fate or whereabouts of their relatives and the dangers they face while carrying out their work, which they undertake due to the negligent response from authorities, are alarming. So the collectives, as I mentioned, there were 70 collectives across Mexico. They did manage to accomplish something pretty impressive. They got a law passed titled the General Law on Disappearance. And the law required three things. The first was a commission to develop a national forensic system, which would allow for bodies to be more accurately and quickly identified. A creation of a DNA database so that, again, they could compare DNA samples and identify folks or track down folks. And development of a plan to search for the missing. So Miriam, as I said, was thought of as kind of a hero in her town of San Fernando. And in May of 2017, a plaque um, in Miriam's honor was installed in the central square of San Fernando. And one article that I read mentioned that there was an engravement on the plaque. A lot of others mentioned the plaque honoring her, but didn't mention the quote. So I'm not sure that this quote is accurate. But even if it's not on the plaque, I think it's a really great quote to kind of capture Miriam's spirit. So, um, and by the way, several of these articles were that I read were in Spanish. I translated them and also tried to kind of like read them as much as I could in Spanish for what I could understand to make sure translations were accurate. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of giving you the spirit of this quote, but supposedly there is potentially an engraved quote on this plaque honoring Miriam that says, courage is not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not the one who does not feel fear, but the one who conquers fear. Mm. And I love that. 
So on average, two clandestine graves are discovered in Mexico every day. And of course, the amazing story of Miriam Rodriguez is just one of many of a disappeared family member searching for their missing family member and unanswered questions. And that is the incredible story of Miriam Rodriguez. That is that is beyond incredible. Wow. I like literally the whole time I was researching her story, I was like, they have to make a movie. Like, not only would this make a great documentary, it would also make an incredible like movie. Like oh, she's yeah. such a amazing figure, I think, that it would make an incredible, incredible movie to see as well. Oh yeah. I would I would See, this is like a mini-series. I think it's too much, even if Ooh, movie. I like that even more. Yeah. Good call. Netflix? Get on it. Start it. <laughs> for, That's incredible. For the executives of Netflix who listen to our podcast, please make the story of Miriam Rodriguez. Wow, what a hero. I mean, beyond yeah. hero. What a brave, courageous woman who yeah. did more than... I was going to say did what she had to do. Did beyond the scope of what any reasonable person should have to do yeah oh my gosh and with no no experience just wanted to make right by her daughter yeah yeah and of course you know i'm telling the story of miriam rodriguez many of the articles touched on the stories of other mothers in mexico who had similar um who were kind of heads of their collectives and and were searching for the their missing loved ones. So Miriam is is not the only woman who is doing this. I want to be clear, but she's just this incredible story that kind of got international notice. Yeah. And imagine all the people that she inspired or that she totally like um mobilized to do to work with her or work independently and do their own thing. Yeah. So how would you rate the episode for watchability? I enjoyed this episode. I'm going to give it a high grade. I'm going to give it an A minus. Ooh, I wow. I found it. Is that the highest grade ever? I think I've given one an A before. I okay, think. okay. But it's it's definitely like top three. Okay. What about you? I think I would I would agree with you. Um, I'll give it a B plus slash A minus, okay. which is I think my highest rating to date. It might be. It might be. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know it wasn't directly inspired by the crime, but what do you think about how they kind of handled the topics of cartel violence? I'm gonna give it a. I'm gonna give it a C plus. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna give it a B minus. Okay. I'm gonna give it All a right. B minus because I think it showed the scope of how out of control yeah um, and i don't mean just like that's out of control but like how to out of their hands things are yeah and how yeah. they even in their bravado of thinking they're doing the right thing and trying to follow a moral compass and whatnot like it just shows like you really are completely out of your depth and there's really not, not much you can do and these people are going to act with impunity and yeah yeah that's yeah it, it showed the danger and threat level i think as accurately as a show like this can can do. Yeah, I would I would agree with you. I think it for Law and Order. I would say it it's it was pretty okay. I would give it a, a B plus. Okay, okay, nice. Hey, if you're happy and you know it, subscribe to our podcast and write us a review because leaving a review makes it more likely that someone else will find our podcast. And you're probably really popular and have a lot of friends, and I'm sure they would love to listen to our show as well. So tell them about it. And no need to head to askjeeves.com. <laughs> I will tell you how to find us right now. 
Our social media is Ripped Headlines on all platforms, and our email is rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. And while you're online, head over to rippedheadlinespod.com. You'll find a link to our Patreon there, as well as our new-ish merch store. (laughs) Also, a percentage of our Patreon proceeds get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative, so by supporting us, you are also supporting positive change in the world. Thank you so much for listening to Ripped from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We will see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Bye.